I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 and verse 1. Mark 6, verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And down in verse 7, and he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. And our subject is the sending of the twelve. We look particularly at that seventh verse. And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, in pairs. And in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, we have the pairs named. There were James and John, well, Peter and, and James and John and Andrew. He called unto him the twelve, sent them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. Why twelve sent forth? Well, it's a picture of the new Israel. Twelve apostles. The twelve tribes and twelve apostles. Here is a new order. The Old Testament has given way to the New Testament. The old dispensation and the special relationship with the Jews is brought to a close and now begins the era of the New Testament Church of Christ, the international Jewish and Gentile Church of Jesus Christ. The old order, well, that came under the symbol of the 12 tribes and now the new order, the 12 apostles. And he sent them forth by two and two. So the disciples now have their first preaching mission. They're under the instruction of Christ. They've listened to his teaching. They've observed his miracles. But very early on in his ministry comes the, the first practical application in their training. Sent out in pairs. How helpful to them. They were to have no other means of uh, security or support Verse 8, commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, that is, no bag or purse, no bread, no money in their purse. And they're to be shod with sandals, which the best understanding of that is they're to have the poorest of footwear, not to be shod with anything to be admired, and not put on two coats, nothing in reserve. And the only concession to human comfort is that they are sent out in pairs. But there's a reason for that, as we'll see. The main reason, probably, was that uh, everything they said, all that they taught, all that they said about Christ and his miracles, and that he was Messiah, well, it would be under the principle of Deuteronomy in the mouths of two or three witnesses. Everything should be established. So it won't be one 
messenger in each village or town, it will be a pair. And they'll work together. They'll work, obviously, together for a measure of companionship and support, and no doubt for protection, because they are warned, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that they're being sent forth as sheep among wolves. And there'll be fierce opposition. There'll be support, yes, but there'll be great opposition and violence, even. Much harassment. And so at least they have the comfort of being in pairs. But back to verse 7, he began to send them forth. Apostelos is the verb from which the word apostle comes from. It starts here. They're disciples up till now, but using that term in the Greek, they are sent out or sent forth. And so the name is attached to their office of apostles. They're a special class of person. The apostles were not to have successors. They were not to be replaced. Some people think they are apostles today. But when you read through the New Testament, and particularly when you get to the pastoral epistles, you have instructions for appointing pastors and teachers and instructions for appointing elders and deacons. You have instructions about the ministry of evangelists. You don't have any instructions about appointing apostles. There is complete silence with regard to that. It was not a continuing office. The apostle was somebody who was with the Lord and he witnessed everything that he said and did. And he was appointed especially by the Lord. The one exception to that case was the person who is under inspiration, allowed to describe himself as one born out of due time. One born out of due time. One who didn't belong with the other apostles in terms of... Uh, having been physically with them. And that was the Apostle Paul. But he too received the personal call of the Lord when Christ appeared to him outside Damascus. There's no question that the Apostle, that Paul was an Apostle. The eleven, of course Judas, was the hypocrite who betrayed Christ, plus Paul. So there were the twelve, and he began to send them forth in pairs. They're a special office, and yet all that we're going to read about their appointment applies to us, and especially to preachers. The general terms of their appointment, we are not appointed to the same office. They were special. They would be the ones who would uh, authenticate new scripture, the New Testament as it would have, was revealed. Some of them would be authors, but all of them together would be those who God used to recognize and approve the New Testament scriptures until the canon was complete. They would be personal witnesses of the resurrected Lord, including Paul. 
and they would therefore need authentication, betokenings. How would people know who the apostles were, the people who held this special office, that they were the ones who recognized revelation, the completion of the scriptures, and that their witness to the resurrection was true. How would people know? They were authenticated in special ways. Now, as I shall go on to show, we are not. We are not apostles, and we do not have their special authentication. The scripture tells us repeatedly that in New Testament times, signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles. They were exclusive to them. We have a different level of, of authentication, which I'll come to. Well, they were sent forth and they were given power over unclean spirits and later on the healing of the sick generally. That's a wonderful thing. Christ gave them his own powers for the purposes of this mission. They were to receive them again later for another mission. He conveyed to them his own powers. Only Christ could do that was unique to him. There are and have been in history some great athletes who could do what no one else could do and their performance was outstanding and remarkable. Well, as their powers faded, they could be coaches to others but they couldn't impart their unique power or gift the things that they could do, you couldn't pick up by being with them. They couldn't lay their hands on you and convey to you their exceptional prowess. Same with a musician. Maybe there is a musician, an artist, who can accomplish with his instrument something that no one else could accomplish. He cannot convey that to another. He can give you tips, he can instruct you, he can help you, but he cannot convey the essence of his gift. And to think like this enables us to realize the unique power of Christ who was divine. If he had power to heal and to cast out spirits, he could convey that entirely to those who would be his representatives, the apostles for the purpose of this mission. So they could go throughout the land and they could preach of him and they could preach his doctrine and preach repentance and they would be authenticated by his own signs and wonders. But that was unique to Christ. He gave them power. I just wanted you to see the uh, marvelous nature of this from Christ, who alone could dispense such capacities. Now verse 8, again, commanded them, this is a command for them, that they should take nothing. They're going to go out in pairs. The first pair is sent out. The others wait. He began to send them. It's a gradual process. It'll be their turn soon. And they do also will be sent out to face opposition, 
but to have some measure of acceptance. And they would take nothing for their journey. Now they were mostly fishermen. They were not the poorest of the poor, but they were relatively poor people. They were not people of status or standing in society. Even Matthew, who had been a tax collector, why he was hated because he worked with the Romans. He didn't have standing. He had a big house and he had wealth. But when he went into the ministry, he wasn't permitted to take any of it with him. He was sent out with nothing. Now they were entitled to be supported and helped by people who believed them and who stood with them and who thought the same way on their journey. So yes, they were entitled to be supported, to take hospitality, but they were to conduct themselves nevertheless as modestly as they possibly could. And they were not to be rich. He commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey because they're going to be dependent upon Christ. They're going to live in a measure by faith. They're not going to be entangled with business. Paul tells Timothy that the person who desires to be a soldier for Christ, well, is like a soldier, and a soldier is not entangled with the affairs of this life. He doesn't run a complex business life. He doesn't make money for himself. He doesn't have a multiplicity of homes. He doesn't present himself as wealthy and secure, well provided for and well endowed. He lives as an ordinary person. He is not to be greater than his Lord. And his Lord lived as a relatively poor man. And so did the Apostle Paul. And there's a lot of ministers today who seem to feel so well about themselves They think they must be infinitely richer than their Lord or their great example in the ministry, the Apostle Paul or any of the apostles. It's it's easy to see a phony, friends. It's easy to see people who are phonies by the things they do and those who pursue riches are phonies and you need have no doubt about that. They have no obedience to the Lord, no likeness to the Lord, never be fooled by them. He commanded them they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, and only one. No bag with provisions, no bread, no money in their purse, shod with sandals, and not put on two coats They're going to be men of prayer. They can be supported wherever they go, but minimally. Verse 10. In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. Don't go fishing around for the best lodgings among those who are sympathetic. If you enter into a house and you're received... You don't hop about while you're in that town, seeing through your mission. There you stay. There you're satisfied, you're content. 
Verse 11 we'll look at in a moment. But uh, they went out and preached that men should repent in verse 12. Stay in that house, there abide, verse 10, till you depart from that place. See through the mission in that town till everybody's heard. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, that's pretty strong and emphatic. Their instruction isn't ignore the person who won't listen to you. Their instruction is turn away from the person who rejects you. Oh, you've got to have patience with the person who's slow to listen. You've got to persevere with the person who hasn't actually rejected you and refused you, but is slow or she's very slow to listen, witness has patience, but rejection you can't work against. Whosoever shall not receive you, the terms are strong, nor hear you, this is rejection. When you depart thence, then shake off the dust that was understood, that gesture in those days, it isn't, uh, it isn't valid now for testimony against them. The thing to do today is to be sure that we've made it clear to people that this is a matter of eternal life and a matter of heaven and hell. And rejection means forfeiture of all those things. We have to make that clear to people. Rejection of the Christian message and the gospel, rejection of Christ isn't just something that will displease God for the moment, but we're all going to heaven in the end. That's what people imagine. Oh no, it's a very terrible and a very final thing to reject the living God. So those things are to be made plain. We have a ministry of soul winning, but it's also a ministry of judgment. By our words, people will be judged. From our testimony, people will be judged for eternity. They heard the gospel and hated it and rejected it. So in these opening verses of the sending, the disciples are sent. Oh, dear friends, if only we would think along these lines. We are sent. We stand in our home as little children, perhaps, a family. And you consider, well, this is my family, so this might seem strange, but I am sent. I am sent to them. I am a sent one. My behavior in this home is a testimony. My words are a testimony. If I react badly under aggravation, if I'm an ill-tempered person, if I'm unkind, if I'm inconsistent, I cannot have a testimony that will be respected. I know it's an odd way to think in a way because these are, this is my husband or my wife or my children, but I am sent here. 
This is my posting to win my entire family. And every word counts. Or we stand in the office or the workplace. I'm sent here. Yes, but if I utter a word, the Lord be against me. The people here are, have no faith, no interest. They're people, very much people of the world. Doesn't matter. I'm sent. I may have to work gradually. Have I started to pray for the one who sits at that desk? The one who's over here? Do I utter a silent prayer daily for them? I'm sent here. Am I influencing this workplace? Am I known by my bearing, my behavior? Do I ever utter things, even if it isn't direct testimony, so that people know I'm a church guy? Why, my church is the person who does this and who's, who has seen this and so on. Oh, they know. They can place me. They know something about me. It's a step in the right direction. The opportunity for testimony, one by one, will come up. Am I working at it? Or is my shame that I have to say, I've been here for five years and I've never prayed for anyone. And I've never uttered a word. And I've reacted badly in difficult circumstances. How can I speak? Dear friends, I'm a sent one. Wherever I am, in my college, wherever it is. What a difference it would make to feel that commission. I'm a sent one, just as the preacher had to, sent to a town. Everything I say and do in this place is being observed closely. In what place soever, I'm sent. The apostles were special office, but their terms are here. Dependence upon the Lord. Lives of relative modesty and simplicity. Do we buy things which are unnecessarily expensive for show? To be seen? That's the pressure on people, even after they're converted, to appear with the wider family as having established ourselves being creditable. No, we're people of modesty. We're not going about in sackcloth and being foolish, but neither are we going to the other extreme because the terms apply to us. We're not after a rich display and certainly not the preachers, the pastors, the church officers. Terrible thing where you... I, I can remember a church not so very far away with a very small car park in the front. And the elders of the church would get there first and they were good men. They were nice men. But they, three or four cars in the little park in the front were all absolute top of the line. What did that say? Infinitely more expensive than they needed or required. If you've got ten children, you need a big vehicle. But you don't need one of those long limos that they use to the airport just for swank. No, dear friends, we're people who live 
reasonably and modestly. I command you, says Christ. He commanded them. But then I come back down to the gifts again, because we need, like them, authentication. Today, the, many of the charismatics, they say, yes, you can't preach the gospel without authentication. So the healings are for today, they say. And they bring the scene of the New Testament up to the present. And they want uh, miracles to impress people and so on. They can't, they can't perform the miracles and the healings of the New Testament. So they exaggerate a great deal. And imagine a great deal of it, you know. But anyway, that's what they're doing. We need authentication. Well, where is our authentication today? Well, they needed it in those days because they were the bearers, the uh, penmen, the instruments of inspiration, of Scripture. Remember how Christ said to the disciples... It's in John 14 and 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will bring you, remind you of everything that Christ did and everything that Christ said and you will be inspired, in other words, to write these down. You are penmen of Scripture and you are the ones who must attend, assent to and authenticate the prophets whose word is to be incorporated in the scripture. So they needed authentication, the apostles, of a very special kind, so that people knew who they were and their authority. But then Christ went on to say, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and that means this, Christ to say, when the Spirit comes, it's going to be different. The ongoing church won't have the authentication of preachers being able to do miracles. There will be miracles of healing, but simply an answer to prayer. There won't be gifted persons personally authenticated with the power to do this and the power to do that. When the Spirit comes, he will be the authenticator. He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What's the authentication for today? It is that as the word is preached, hearers are illuminated by the Holy Spirit and in their hearts they're regenerated so that one moment the doubting sinner who has trouble with the Bible and is programmed to believe by atheism that it's all myths and it isn't inspired and it's just an ancient book suddenly as he's preached to and as he reads it there dawns in him a realization this is true this is true everything I read makes sense or oh, there's things I don't understand but I never thought this last week but now I've come to see 
This is the truth of God. This method is self-authenticating itself to me. He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Not miracles, not signs, not wonders. The work of the Holy Spirit is the great authenticator of the message in the New Testament age. And Pentecostalism has missed that. They've jumped over that. They're not aware of that. This is the great principle of Christianity. This is what dominated all Christian teaching for 19 centuries until the flame of Pentecostalism began to flicker. And they missed it. And many of them are good people and earnest people and gospel people. But they've taken a wrong turning and they've missed the authenticating power of the Holy Spirit. So as the apostles had the outward signs, we have the great inward sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. He convinces the redeems the redeemed, and authenticates everything in their heart. And every believer sitting here in this church today has by the illumination and the regenerating work of the Spirit received that authentication. And there was a point where you came to realize this is the truth. You didn't need a miracle externally to tell you that and it lives within you and you have problems I I don't understand how this could be said I don't uh, but you believe it I want my problems to be solved I don't understand you say all the scriptures no that's right but I don't disbelieve it it is true if there's something that puzzles me I've got further to go There is a solution, but I know instinctively this is God's word. I hope everybody understands that the external signs yield to the internal conviction and convicting work of the Holy Spirit of the living God. But in general, all the things that you learn here about the twelve are true of us today. The sent ones are authenticated here and we also are authenticated. And then I want to talk for a few moments about uh, expected opposition. But it isn't here in Mark's Gospel. It's in Matthew uh, where the words are added, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's very instructive. There will be much opposition. You are to go as sheep. Sheep are relatively gentle creatures. The sheep illustration here isn't used by Christ in quite the same way that he uses it elsewhere. Sheep are also foolish, wandering creatures who have to be guided. That's not the idea here. Sheep, in terms of vulnerability and gentleness. Sheep contrasted with wolves. 
So we're to be sheep in that sense. We are a gentle people. We have to warn about hell and judgment. We have to warn against sin. But we're not a raging people. Sometimes preachers go too far in that direction. And there are some people adopt a style of preaching which is very aggressive. And they shout and yell. Well, you have to raise your voice if you're in the open air, of course. But you must avoid hostile, toned, shouting and yelling. We are, after all, as Christ's ambassadors, sheep. And we don't forget that. So the aggressive approach is misplaced and mistaken because we have to reflect some of the love of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God. And you can't snarl all that and do that in an aggressive manner. So that's just a caution. We are sheep. And we come with kindness and appeal if we possibly can. But the opposition is wolves. They're ferocious. They'll tear you apart. They're also very cunning. There's no uh, making peace with them. You can't calm them down. A pack of wolves after your blood. You can't talk to them. They'll tear you apart. They're cruel and spiteful creatures. And we see that today. There's reading only this week of a man who was uh, a lay member of the Synod in the Church of England. And he was holding forth in the debate they had last week concerning uh, whether they would give a blessing to same-sex couples. And he was speaking of the opposition he's had, even from clergy, and death threats. Death threats from members of the clergy and violent statements and uncouth and unclean statements. There are some very nasty people about to oppose truth. Well, said Christ, I send you forth as sheep among wolves. And everything Christ says is true. There are wolves out there, and many of those LGBT people are wolves, friends, in the way they'll tear you apart if they can. And we read of this from time to time. The person who stands up, mind you, that dear man, I don't know what he's doing in the Church of England Synod. That church is so far gone, pretty hopeless to stand up in the Church of England Synod, it's pretty obvious the way they're going to go. There are Bible believers preaching in that church, but they're a minority. And that's very difficult today because the church as a whole is completely apostate and away from the things of God. And it's ruled by people who don't believe any of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible virtually. Wolves. Yes, you'll get it in the office. There'll be a wolf there. You've got to be very careful, very wise. So the Lord warns. And it's so right to the end of time. 
there will be opposition. And the storm clouds are gathering, and the opposition is becoming more and more bold in our day. And I'm an old man. If the Lord doesn't come, I won't see the worst of this. But all you younger people will. There'll be greater wolf-like treatment of the gospel and Christian believers in the years ahead, without doubt, because we're moving towards the very end. And here is this passage, the sending of the apostles. We are all sent. We're to be dependent upon the Lord, not our own security and wealth and comforts and affluence, people at ease. There are many reasons why the Lord's servants, especially preachers, ministers, are not to be rich. We read of some of them in 1 Timothy and chapter 6. Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now you may be rich as a Christian person, God may have prospered you. That's not a sin. You've got a heavy burden of responsibility not to let those riches rule you, not to let them turn you into a different sort of person, an arrogant person, a show-off person, a self-advertising person, a person who is self-indulgent, You've got a lot of responsibility. Maybe the Lord's called you to be a great steward. You've got to be very careful. But for the man of God, for the minister, for the preacher, the apostle says, Thou, O man of God, flee these things. For the person in the pew who God has prospered and given responsibility and capacity to, you can handle your wealth in a godly, humble manner. But the man of God is told to flee it altogether. As I said when we opened, don't believe the phonies who live rich lives. There's always something the matter with them. Thou, O man of God, flee these things. You're to be dependent upon the Lord entirely. They that do good, they that be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. But for Timothy, leave it alone entirely. So we've been looking at these things, dependence upon the Lord. The Apostle Paul sets an example by going to an extreme which isn't necessary for most preachers. He didn't accept support at all. And he worked with his hands. Why? Because in his culture, in his particular society, 
He knew that if he took support, people would say, you only do this to enrich yourself. You only do this for a living. So he took no support. So that everybody would take his ministry absolutely seriously. The scripture says that the generality of preachers are to take support, but not too much, for their meat, says Mark, for their meat, their food, not their second homes and their third homes and their oversized cars, for their food. In other words, they're not to be rich. I'm sorry to labour that. It's a task of eternal significance. People are either saved or judged for all eternity as the result of our proclamation. And we need authentication, but not external authentication, the authentication of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, which gives light, illumination, right into the mind. So those are some of the things that we learn from the sending of the twelve apostles. We're not apostles. They were only to preach at that mission to the Jews. They weren't to go to the Gentiles. They were not to go to the Samaritans. They were to go exclusively to the lost house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But their instructions were changed in due course, and especially in the final words of Matthew's Gospel. It's in Mark 2 on a different occasion, and they were to go to all. Verse 19 of Matthew 28, Go ye therefore the great commission, and teach all nations, Samaritans, Gentiles, everyone, Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and the great promise of the Lord. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We are in the Christian era, the gospel age, the last age of the world. And we're all sent. We're not apostles But in principle, the rules that were given to the apostles teach us our standards.